invite you to open your Bibles to the fourth gospel, the gospel of the apostle John. Turn to John's gospel. And this morning we're making a run for the end of the prologue. After all these weeks, we're hopefully going to finish verse 18. We're looking at verse 14 through 18. Verse 14 is going to be a challenge to get entirely past, of course, because it is a pivotal, it is a foundational, uh, it is the statement of the apostle, if you will. This is his thesis statement for the entire gospel. The word was made flesh, that Logos has come. He has a name. We have seen him. We have beheld him. We've touched him. We've heard him. We were eyewitnesses. And we'll be looking at some of these supportive texts that make it very clear and make it hard for, to understand why there uh, should have been any kind of uh, confusion about this or heretical statements about who Jesus was. And there were, and councils were formed, and issues were dealt with in 325 A.D. and 451 A.D. Uh, those different issues were addressed. So we're going to be looking at this passage as we looked at him who has come as the true life, or true light, rather, in verse 9 and following, we looked at last week, him becoming as the true life, light into the world, and now coming in the flesh, Verse 14 through verse 18. Let's read that together. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now one who has, no one who, no one, excuse me, has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for all of the information that you impart to us about Jesus and about who he is. We thank you for the plain spokenness. We thank you for all of the biblical support that you were careful to give us, that there should be no confusion about who this man is that appeared on the earth as a baby a long time ago, 2,000 years ago, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this text. We thank you for... Uh, John's gospel is uh, powerful and profound as it is. We are wending our way through it, and we ask for your help again this Lord's Day morning to understand what is seriously and sincerely a very, very powerful passage, even, even this verse. So help us now that we might see him all the more clearly as we develop our own evangelical apologetic, uh, that we would help others to see who Jesus is as the Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. So obviously in our call to evangelism, there's one thing that we want to be clear about, and that is that question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus, the one that they had called the Christ. Who is he? In fact, he was here as a man. He lived in space and time. In the fullness of time, as Galatians 4.4 4 says, God sent forth his son. 
born of a woman, born under the law, making it clear that there was a particular time in this timeline continuum that God himself had created, that he appointed for his son to be sent. But his son, we learn in the opening verse of this gospel, is the eternal one. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. So he existed. He pre-existed the appearance of this uh, flesh uh, and blood baby that who uh, makes the claim to be the Messiah, the Christ of God. So what we're seeing in this verse, just fundamentally, first of all, we need to understand is we're seeing uh, the Trinity. The Trinity is important to understand the understanding of our our triune God, that our God is one in essence, one uh, God is who we believe in, one who manifests himself, of course, in three different persons. Because we see that, we see the distinction already in that first verse, second clause. He, he was with God. So there's a distinction there. And it, the, uh, the Logos was with God. The Word was with God. And then, of course, verse 2 says He. And so we know it's a person, and we know that person is distinct from another person. So we begin already in the first few words of this gospel to make a distinction between uh, the Father and the Son. So there's a distinction made there. And then, of course, the third clause of the first verse, the word was God. And so that logos, that true light, that life who was the light of men, who has now appeared, is no less than God. And so this should be clear. But the reason it wasn't, I believe, is by the influence of the demonic influence of false teaching with regard to who Christ is. Because if we're saying this and we're recognizing this passage, particularly the verse that we're on this morning, is defining who Christ is, especially everything that led up to it, John has made it very clear, and again, this is just his prologue, then that's what needs to be attacked. That's what needs to be challenged. Who is this man? who claims to be the Christ. We've learned so much about, we've learned enough in the first 13 verses to, to fill volumes, haven't we? These are profound, powerful statements of truth about who he is. So we understand that these three persons subsist under the divine nature. So there's one divine nature. The divine nature itself, that God is the oneness there, didn't manif- didn't, uh, doesn't, a call out the Christ doesn't relate to Jesus as the Son. It is the relationship that the Son has with the Father that we read about here this morning. It is the Father sending His Son, which has to do with that whole concept of Him being begotten, and yet at the same time, as the Son of God, being eternal. These are our powerful, powerful things to understand. So this word incarnate, the title is God incarnate, God in the flesh. It's a Latin term, a Latin term that means uh, becoming in flesh. Simply that it's he's he's come in the flesh. It's to make in the flesh. It's to to be made flesh are the literal definitions of that Latin term incarnate. So the passage that we have here in a simple statement is the manifestation of the son of God in human flesh. It's the manifestation of the Son of God in human flesh. That is, this man who was Jesus, 
who is the Christ. So from his majestic place on the right hand of the Father, he willingly went. He was sent by the Father. He left holy perfection in glory by choice. He, and we read about that, of course, in Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 8. Another strong passage with regard to uh, the Son of God condescending to become man. So we have John's thesis statement here. The eternal God became man. The eternal God became man. Fully God, fully man. So in landing on this verse, we come to the most essential doctrine in the Christian faith. If we get this wrong, if we get who this Logos is that John's defining, if we, as he begins to be defined clearly as Jesus Christ, if we get that wrong, we do not have the Christ. We do not have the Savior that God has sent. And so it's attacked. It shouldn't surprise us. It explains why historically the doctrine you'd refer to it as Christology, the study or the doctrine of Jesus Christ is twisted. It's marred. It's, it's, it's been a mess. And as I said, these things have been confronted in a couple of um, different councils that were held in the first few uh, centuries. So first, the vilification of the incarnation. We're going to look at just, just in this introduction very briefly. I don't want to spend a time on a lot of the error. We want to spend more time on accurately defining who he is from Scripture. So there was a, a concept going around in the first couple of centuries in Greek thought, and that is known as dualism. Dualism influenced the Gnostics. Dualism, dual to, meaning that it dichotomized things spiritual and things physical, things material and things immaterial. And the thought was in that early Greek dualism that anything physical or material was not redeemable. It's flesh, it's fallen, it ages, it gets sick, it goes toward the grave, it dies, it's gone. What's salvageable is anything spiritual. So this is what they're attacking. So this belief permeated all of these different views it, it, because it challenged the doctrine of the incarnation. It made it difficult for them to accept in John's time that he was not only God who has come as Savior, that's easy to accept at that point, but that he came in the flesh. Very, very important, essential to our gospel. He has come in the flesh, fully God and fully man. So, except for sin. So a couple of those different heretical views that had to be dealt with, and they were in the early centuries. Uh, one is docetism, which simply says that this was only he, Jesus only appeared to be human; that uh, he wasn't, it wasn't real. He's some sort of apparition. He's some sort of a, a phantom. Is the idea Arianism? Jesus was neither fully God nor fully man, but some sort of intermediate status that he held. There was a lot of these. I just give you three of the primary ones. Modalism. Modalism said that, understood that the persons of the Trinity were merely three different modes that God would manifest himself in. 
And in fact, in the Trinity, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always exist. They exist within the overall uh, nature of God, which we would refer to as the Godhead. So you cannot say, for instance, that uh, the Godhead was made manifest or the Godhead sent. No, it's within the triune relationship of the persons of the Trinity. The Father sent the Son. All three are fully God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's the way we need to understand this. So in 325 and, and 451 uh, AD, at the uh, Council of Chalcedon, these things were dealt with, Arianism uh, first, and then Nestorianism in 451. And you can, you, those of you that are more bookish can dive in and study that. I, I want to spend the rest of our time with the verification that the Scripture gives us, the verification of the Incarnation. Listen to what John says in his first epistle. 1 John 2, 22 to 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So if you're saying that he is Messiah, you're saying he's the long-awaited anointed one. He is the Savior. He has to be God. He, because God says in the Old Testament prophets that I am the only Savior. I will save you. You're my people. I will come. I will save you. So the liar is the one who denies this. I mean, I love the plain way that, I mean, John's epistles and even his gospel sometimes are a challenge to outline. Uh, they're very difficult because he, he uh, writes like this. He doesn't write just straight linearly. But what I do like about him is he's very plain spoken. It's the liar who denies this. This is the Antichrist who he denies who uh, he who denies, rather, the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son, the Son of God, that Jesus is the Son of God, has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's as plain as that. And I love how plainly he makes it. But Paul agrees, First Timothy 3.16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. There it is in one verse. The whole gambit, the whole appearance of Christ until his glorification, his ascension. Peter also agrees. First Peter 1.20 He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, there is the eternality, which can only belong to the uncreated one, our God, but was ma made manifest in the last times for your sake. So he wasn't a created being. That's a heresy. Begotten is it's God as the son in that role of our triune God being made manifest as a man. He's being made manifest because man needed to have God show up. He needed to display who God, who he is. And he did that through his son, Jesus Christ, that and much more as we celebrated last week in communion. So this God incarnate confession then is a crucial test of our, of true doctrine. 
So in your evangelistic efforts, this is something that you really want to clarify, or even with Christian family members or friends that have been family members and friends for a long time who claim to be Christian, but they're in error on these things. You, out of your love for them, out of your concern that they get this right, because their eternal destiny hangs in the balance, you want to say, wait a second, what is that you believe about Jesus? Who is he to you? Because typically, because we're don't give much thought to this, sadly. We're, we're satisfied if they just say, um, yeah, no, I'm a Christian. Uh, I know Jesus or, uh, you know, Jesus is my savior. Well, what, what, who is Jesus? I mean, help me understand. I want to understand because maybe I'm off on something. You need to examine that. Here's what he says. That is our human author here in that first epistle of his again. Chapter 4, 1 to 3, and then verse 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't just accept that checked box, but test the spirits. Now we know what he's talking about. To see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. They might be one of those who are deceived by the Antichrist's that are out in the world. By this you know, verse 2, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Crucial. That spirit is from God. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus, the simplicity also with John, not only in his word choices and the way he speaks very plainly and concisely, but he puts things in antithesis. Aren't you glad? There's only like first, second, third, fourth categories. There's no gray areas. If you believe this, that's of God. If you believe that or don't believe that, it's not of God. That's it. He made it plain for us because he created us. He knows we're plain people. We're simple people and we appreciate that. So every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. And then verse 6, by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if we want to help somebody understand whether they're, they've bought into a spirit of truth or a spirit of error about Jesus Christ, we will help them to find from Scripture exactly who he is. And that's what we want to set out to do as much as we can this morning in the time that we have. John 4, verse 12, first part, and then 14 and 15. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So we know that God is spirit. We know that up until now, we've, we've not been able to see God. I'm going to show you how orthodox I am, John could be saying, with regard to our understanding of Yahweh. He's spirit. We, yes, no one has seen him. We get that. I'm, I'm with you on that. But I want you to know he's shown up. He's come in the flesh. We've seen him. We've seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. No banding about with those words. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Plain spoken. That's it. So we go over these things in our own mind first and then to help others who check the box but we suspect, 
I don't know that they fully know who this Jesus is. I suspect that they don't really, they aren't really, they're entrusting their eternal destiny on a Jesus they're misdefining or they're misunderstanding. I suspect that. We need to talk. F.F. Bruce put it this, I like the way he put this, it's very succinct. One who had one who had his being eternally within the unity of the Godhead became man at a point in time without relinquishing his oneness with God. There it is in a statement. And there's a lot of statements, good, sound, succinct statements that we can hang our hat on like that one. The fifth chapter of John's first epistle, John, 1 John 5.20, and we know, we know, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. So you see a lot of John's Gospel showing up in the letters he would write as well. I mean, it's clear who the author is here. He's making the same point. So verse 14, let's take a look at this. That was the introduction. Verse 14. Now, last week, the five verses that we covered, verse 9 through 13, we had to isolate each one because each one had a profound statement. With verse 14, there's five clauses that we're going to look at. And if we have time, we'll finish out the prologue to verse 18. Let's see what the Lord allows here. All right, let's get started. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh. Okay? And dwelt among us. All right? And we have seen His glory. What glory? Glory as the only Son from the Father. And who is that glory? Full of grace and truth. So the word became flesh. Greek sarx. The word sarx is used in a couple of different ways. One, of course, can be used like it is in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, when it says these are deeds of the flesh before it lists the fruit of the Spirit. But sometimes it just means flesh. He came in the flesh doesn't mean that he came in sinful flesh. He didn't. He's part. Of, he's uh, wasn't uh, part of the fall. He didn't get affected by that. So this is simply him showing up as a man. So, but it's not enough to say that Jesus was only a perfect man without sin. It's not enough to say that. You also have to know that at the same time he's fully God the same time he's fully God. We refer to it as the hypostatic union. He's 100% God and 100% man all at the same time without any separation and without any mixture. Yeah. Easy to understand. You good? We can finish early if you're good. All right. (laughs) Neither am I. Let's keep going. See what the word says. So let's look at this then because this is important. The deity of Christ is attacked probably the most the deity of Christ, that this is in fact God in the flesh, God incarnate. I've got a few verses here just to sort of 
um, nail this concept down, but you know there's many more. There's the seven I am statements that we'll be covering, Lord willing, as we go through John's gospel. Here's just a couple. Um, John 8:58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was what? That's the ego am I, that Moses was given on Mount Sinai. The I am. John 10, 30. I and the Father are. How does that work? John 14, 9. And we're going to be covering these as we go through. This is just wonderful. So we don't have to like comprehend this fully right now. John's giving us a Passel of doctrine right here in the prologue, but it will be unpacked as we go along. You just have to live long enough. I have to live long enough to enjoy it. <laughs> it's enjoyable. He said to Philip, remember this in chapter 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me. Yeah. So we help ourselves and those that we, God has called us to help look at these and say, what? What does that what does that mean? And there's many more. Well, well uh, I am the light, I am the resurrection, I am the true vine. All of the rest, I am the all of the I am, am statements. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2:13. We're waiting for our blessed hope. Who is it? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Who is it? Jesus Christ. There it is. The great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or you can read Hebrews 7, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is Jesus, of course. Look at this list. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Or 1 Peter 2.22 he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Or back to 1 John again, chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. I'm starting to really like the way John writes. That's good. That's good. There's a lot in that verse, isn't there? He's come to take away sin. In him there was no sin. Sin. So he made him who knew no sin to be what? Made sin that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. How does that work? Second Corinthians 5, right? Verse 21. How does that work? But that's what he's talking about. Next clause from our verse here, and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Now, if you want verification of the incarnation, John, hands down, has got it. Not only is he doing it in his gospel that we can plainly see, and he's made plain, but in his epistle, here's how he starts his epistle. You're hoping for some Pauline-type nice salutation, Right? Right out of the gate. First John 1, 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, eternal, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes. I'm telling you, he could say, that this is coming from our human physical senses. We saw him. We heard him. Which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life, this is him, the Lagos. You remember him from the beginning of the gospel. And the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father, which was with the Father. Right? There's that second clause of the first verse. The Lagos was with God. Right? And was made manifest to us. So the one that was eternal, the Son of God, He was made manifest to us. So He came alive. Yes, in fact, we saw Him. We lived with Him. We walked with Him. We talked with Him. He spoke. He ate with us. He slept with us. And the things that He did, that we saw Him do, there's no question This is the Son of God. This is Him. And so we've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard. I mean, he's going over and over this. We proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We'll read about that in the 14th through the 16th chapter as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's, 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 he's saying this is, I want to, verse uh, 21 and 23 in chapter 14 of John's gospel. I will dwell in you and you will dwell in me and all of this fellowship that's going on. So it's not just a Trinitarian fellowship. This is a fellowship with the Godhead. This is our expectation. He wants to make sure that this is perfectly clear. This is his opening gambit. He opens with this. There's no time for salutations. Let Paul do that. Paul did that. Let let. The synoptics, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke that have been around for decades now, you know all about the details of his lineage. You know all about those details. We need to get out of the gate with something powerful, something profound. You need to know who this man Jesus was. You need to know that he's the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. I am the resurrection and the life. And those who believe in me, though they die, yet will they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he looks at Martha and says, do you believe this? Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Right answer. He is coming into this world. He was not a created being. He is a manifestation of the second person of the triune God. God sent him and he went and took on flesh because that's what we needed the Savior to be, right? One of us in the sense that he's fully human. That's why he was also a Messiah who learned. 
As Hebrews 2 and chapter 5 point out, he learned through the things that he suffered. He learned. He learned as a boy, the text says in the Gospels, as he grew up. He was learning and growing. The omniscient one. Marvelous. Just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. We have seen his glory. We've seen it. So we didn't just see this man who claims to be God, who claims to be the Son of God, who claims to be the Messiah who has come to take away the sins of the world. You would be expecting something that speaks to the glory of God whenever he's manifested. He was a cloud by day and a pillar at night when they were going through the wilderness, right? Well, here's how he manifested himself now. And we have seen his glory. Literally the manifestation of the whole being of God, his power, his personality, and his properties or his attributes. The properties that manifest God. The power that he manifested when he would perform miracles. His personality, we watched how he talked. We watched how he walked. We watched how he interacted with people. His personality is attractive to us because he's doing it as a human, as a human should have been, just like Adam before he sinned. Who walked in the immediacy of the communal relationship he had with his creator. Now gone. Because our first parents sinned, and so have we. That's, we've seen his glory. It's a manifestation of that which is seen and that which is unseen concerning his deity. So his power, Jesus demonstrated his omniscience, didn't he? The second chapter of John's gospel, he could see their hearts, right? He, he could understand these people who claim to be believers, he could see their heart. He understands the thoughts of the people when he chooses. And when he chooses not to, he chooses not to. He can set these things aside. But he never separates himself from deity. He's manifest in the flesh, but he is still fully God. He's never less than 100% God. It's important to know that. In the second chapter of John's Gospel, verse 11. Uh, this is the wedding at Cana. This is, it says, this, the first of his signs when he turned the water into wine. He manifested, it says, his glory. So all John's saying is we had be, not only beheld him in, in the flesh, but we beheld his glory we beheld his glory when he was manifesting all that there is that defines our God. So whenever the scripture talks about in his name, we end our prayers in his name. It's mean all the fullness of who, of what comprises the Godhead, all of it, power, personality, properties, all of it was manifested in this man. We saw it. The power was undeniable. He pretty much cleared out all sickness in the Middle East in his day. But this first miracle, it's like it, it's nothing to him. He, he didn't even have to like speak a word. And like with the blind man, reach into the ground and take some clay and 
you know, spit on it and put it in his eye. That was all for our benefit. We learn different uh, principles by that. He doesn't have to do that all. He thinks a thought. He is the universal mind. He is the, ha, holds the form of ideas. And his ideas are expressed through the Logos. And the Logos came and manifest himself. And it is the Christ. Nothing less. So when they saw him, they saw this luminescence of, of the Shekinah glory uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that in Matthew 17? This is, Jesus took them up. This is verses 1 to 3 in Matthew 17. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. This idea of Shekinah it comes from a Hebrew word. I don't know if, if you're aware of this or not, but it, it means dwelling. It means a, a settling. I, I, I like to think that it has some connection to the fact that those of us who are in Christ abide in Him and we behold His glory because the place of God is to be with whom? Who does He want to tabernacle with? Have you read Revelation? His place is with man. It's his creation. The only one that bears his image and likeness. And he wants it back. It's a reparation. It's a restoration project. I want that back. The enemy's got them dying and he's got them sinning. And I'm coming to get them back. They're mine. So it has the idea, this wonderful, powerful idea of intimacy and of possession. We belong to him. You are so safe. Those of you who had made your profession of faith in Christ sincerely have him operating in his spirit in your life and you are his. You are his by possession. You should never have to worry about who started this nonsense about ever having, I might lose my salvation. It wasn't yours in the beginning. It isn't yours now and it won't be yours as he eternally holds you because he intends to keep you. You belong to him. This is remarkable. So they beheld his glory. This is a glory that they actually saw. Second Peter 1, 16 to 18, for we did not follow cleverly. He's talking about the transfiguration here. You remember. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his majesty, megaliotes. We saw his majestic glory. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from the God, the father, you see that triune relationship in the Godhead. This is just glorious. And the voice was born to him from the majestic glory, capital M, capital D, uh, G, mega low prepes. This is, this is the God, the father. I'm going to have to rest a minute. This is, we saw this. We beheld this. This 
His majesty, the majesty of the Son, and the majestic glory of the Father. This was pretty awesome. This was pretty amazing. It's just incidental that Moses and Elijah that have been dead for hundreds of years happen to be there. This is, this is the real story right here. It's the Christ manifesting himself in the Shekinah glory of God. It is the true life, light who has come as the life has become the light of man. And we manifest that glory. That's why it's not meant to be put under a bushel. You're not meant to restrain that. You don't withhold him who you know. You speak for him. You weep for him. You speak his logos, words from the logos. You speak truth. So in such short supply today, isn't it? it, it that's why I crave it now. That's why I crave it. I, I mean, let's not descend into some Pontius Pilate syndrome. Right? What is truth? You can't find it. That's, that's kind of what our day is like, isn't it? Oh, my word. Where, where is it? Why do we crave truth? Why do we crave truth? Why do we crave truth? Because Jesus the Christ is truth. Amen. He's truth manifest in the flesh. And what did we do to him? We crucified him. That's how serious the situation is. That's how much, how desperate we are to understand our need for him. And there he is holding out his nail-scarred hand, offering this to you for how much? What does it cost you? Nothing. Great is his love with which he loved us and made us alive in Christ. Profound. Glory, he goes on, next clause, glory as of the Son of God from the Father. Monogenes. Monogenes. So he is unique. He is, he is um, uh, one of a kind, is the definition of this word. There's only one Son of God who's lived eternally, who the Father said, it's time. Galatians 4.4. 4. In the fullness of God, time, God did what? Sent forth his Son. That's not a created being. He sent forth his Son who manifests himself in the flesh, who was born of a woman. At a particular point in time, Jesus came as a baby, and we celebrate that in, Christ, in uh, Christmas, and, we're, and we should. We should. That needs to be recaptured. We need to be asking our family members and our neighbors, what are you celebrating? A tree? The gifts? The lights, all oh, these decorations. Satan, <laughs> he so understands us in, a, in the worst malevolent way. I'm going to dangle all of these bright and shiny things in front of you until you are absolutely hypnotized. And instead of his, you become mine. And if I can't take salvation away from you, I'm going to make you the most pathetically ineffective Christian that's on the planet. This is the birth of the Son of God in human flesh. This is His glory 
It's the glory as of the Son of God from the Father. Matthew 8, 28-29, when there were two demon-possessed men, you remember that, the Gadarenes? coming out of the tombs and listen to what they said. They came out of the tombs. They were fierce, the text says. They were fierce and vicious and they cried out, what have you to do with us? What? O son of God. You know, the demons have a more accurate theology than some others that claim to be Christians do. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Even their eschatology is pretty remarkable. We know it's not time yet. What are you doing here? It's not time to cast us into that lake of fire. Mark 3, verse 11, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Deadly accurate. How about the disciples in the boat? Matthew 14, 33, Truly you are the Son of God. And what did that make them do when they realized that? <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't you? It's like, whoa. He just said, peace be still. And the weather changed, like dramatically. And what did they, what was the claim? What did they realize in that moment manifesting that kind of power that they are beholding in the flesh? The Son of God. Luke 1, 35. Remember the angel to Mary? The child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. How about the centurion at the cross when Jesus had died? Matthew 27, 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, they were filled with awe and they said, Truly this was the Son of God. That's, see, that's, that's the pivotal point because when you say that Jesus isn't just Jesus Christ, well, who was he though? You say, no, Jesus was the Son of the triune God in the flesh. Now you've got something salvific. Now you've got something that has the power not to just perform all of these amazing miracles, but to save your life. That's why this is important. Or Saul, who became Paul, remember this, in Acts 9? He's just newly converted. He's in Damascus. And what's he preaching? He's with the disciples in Damascus, Acts 9, 19 to 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He didn't waste any time. It's like John's writing. He went right to it. What did he do? Saying, he is the Son of God. He has no fear of man, and he's newly converted. He said, he's the Son of God. Do to me what you will, but Jesus is the Son of God who is coming into this world. That's what you see recognized throughout the Scriptures. Or John one forty nine, when Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. He gets it. That was actually before the Acts 9. John 1, 49. And then Acts 9 that I just read before that. And then at the end of our gospel, verse 31 of chapter 20, 
But these are written, so here's the conclusion. His theme, his theme is that the Son of God is manifest in the flesh and his name was Jesus, who is the Christ, who has come into the world to save us from our sins, okay? That's his, that's his whole purpose in writing this gospel. But these are written so that you may believe, and that's the issue, isn't it? All he does require, that is God, is that you believe what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Next clause, full of grace and truth. So this Jesus, Son of God, Messiah Jesus Christ, is full of grace and truth. The ability to receive grace is predicated on embracing the fact of revealed truth. If you don't embrace what the Scripture says truthfully, then you don't receive the grace. You can't receive the grace if you believe something erroneously about who Jesus was. It, it doesn't work that way. They necessarily go together. They have to. You have to believe that this is the Word of God, which is true, because He is the true light who has come. The Logos, the Word of God, is true every bit. John 14 again, John 14, 15, when he's preparing the disciples for his crucifixion, he says, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you in all what? Truth. So they necessarily go together. Verse 15 of our text, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said he comes after me, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Don't have time to do any more unpacking of that just to say that John the Baptist makes it very clear. Not John, the one who wrote the gospel, but John the Baptist makes it very clear. He was born, as you know, you know the story, six months before Jesus. But he who came after me actually came before me. He was. He is the eternal one. Makes that clear. Verse 16. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Oh. Let's give it a try. Okay. From his fullness. From his fullness. That reminded me of Colossians 2, 9 to 10. So if that popped up in your head, I think you're on the right track. At least it'll be confirming for me. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Listen to this. For in him, he unpacks that, those three words. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Well, let that ruminate in your mind for a moment. So in Bodily form, the fullness of deity dwell. This is, this is Paul's writing. So this is Paul fully understanding who Jesus was long before John wrote his gospel. But what does he say after that in verse 10? And you have been filled in him, <coughs> who is the head of all rule and authority. So from his fullness, we have all received to behold his majestic glory is breathtaking enough, but to possess his infinite grace is cause for rejoicing, wouldn't you say? We have the fullness of that same Godhead that we've been talking about, the same deity in us, illuminating truth 
to us, spurring us on to be being kept filled with the Spirit so that we can keep a walk started that was started in the first century with Jesus, and that is His disciples following Him. We have the capacity now, finally, not only are our sins forgiven in Christ, but also the power of sin has no reign or authority. That's why He says it's... <coughs> It is, he is the head of all rule and authority. You don't have to obey the one who is in this world, tempting you to sin. The world itself that tempts you to sin, your flesh itself tempting you to sin. He wants you, that is the enemy of our soul, to believe that you don't have power over your sin because of the repetitive nature which sometimes we continually show patterns of sin. So we begin to, begin to buy into that lie. And it is a lie. From His fullness we have all received. Jesus did not come to manifest God only, but to grant the very possession of His divine nature. Do you realize what we've been given? He came to manifest God. He didn't stop there. He didn't just manifest God and wonderfully, awesomely submit himself to the cross so he could pay the price for our sins and then have the power to raise himself from the dead so that we could have the hope that death is conquered and in him we will be risen too in a resurrection after death. It's not just that. He came that you would possess His divine nature. From His fullness, we have all received. Well, that should sound like, that sounds a whole lot like Second Peter 1, 3-4, doesn't it? Verse 3 says, His divine power, in verse 4, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become, and listen to this, partakers of the divine nature. That, that's incomprehensible to me. Is it to you? It, it, it's incomprehensible. But I'll tell you what else I found, and I, f I found it late in the study this morning, is, is, is to juxtapose that over against Hebrews 2.14. So we are partakers of the divine nature Watch this, Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Keep those in mind together. He came in the flesh. He partook of the same things we have to become part of humanity that then and only then would he be qualified to serve as the propitiation, the payment for the sins of that same mankind. So he's partaking of humanity here and in the Second Peter 1 text, we partake of his divine nature. He made him to be sin so that we might in him be the righteousness of God. These things are profound. 
God is not only revealing some, himself to us, he's literally giving himself to us. Do you see that? He's literally giving himself to us. God revealed himself to us in the life of Jesus, and he gave himself to us in the death of his son. Revealed himself to us in the life of Jesus and gave himself to us in his death on the cross. This is yours. You just have to see your need for salvation, which confesses that you are a sinner in need and believe that I've come that you might have life. Have life in me. And from Him, we receive pardon. We receive possession. We receive purity. And we receive power. That's what we receive. And it's sad then to see how pathetic we are sometimes in our Christianity. We lack none of these things. We are forgiven. We received pardon, possession. We belong to Him. We're not going anywhere but to glory. Nobody can take that away. Purity. He's making us holy. He's purifying us. He's doing it. It is Him that is at work in you, both to will and to work according to His good pleasure. That good work that I've started in you, I will complete. He's purifying us. This is amazing. And power. You have the power over sin. You have the power to say no to it. And one day, you'll be removed from even the presence of sin. Won't that be wonderful? Indeed it will. And grace upon grace, like the man in the wilderness or the cruise of oil with the widow Zarephath or the bread, the basket of bread and fish, right? Inexhaustible. Those are metaphors for this truth. Grace upon grace. How much grace do we need? Exactly. Exactly. And it's given to us. And there's a reason that he told them, I think, don't store up the manna. Don't do that. Why? I have more. Yes, you trust me. I have all the f grace that you will need and grace upon grace upon grace because I am taking you home to be with me. How fantastic is that? We buy into lies and self-delusion sometimes to our hurt, to our misery. But this is truth. He's the true light who has come to shed light. The light, when it comes, defines things the way they really are. That's why those who have rejected Christ want to remain in dark places. They don't want to see how things really are. They shout loudly because they don't want to hear the truth. Because they prefer the darkness. And he's calm and he said, I've brought you light and this light 
is your life because I myself am life. I have the power over death itself. Amazing. We stand in this grace, Romans 5 says. This is grace in which we stand. We don't move. Like a shower, like standing under a waterfall. I need to be here so I can be refreshed, so I can be purified, so that I not only have received the forgiveness, but I'm receiving the cleansing that John writes about in John 1, 1 John 1, 9. He, those who confess their sins are forgiven of their sins, and they are what? Cleansed from all unrighteousness. My grace is inexhaustible. I'm washing you. I'm cleansing you. When I came down and found you, you were face down in the mud and you were dead and I picked you up and I used the washing of the water of the word, Ephesians 5, to clean you and wash you up so I can bring you home. So we abide in him, like John 14 says. If we find out, and this is hard to hear, if we find out that grace has run dry, it's not because it ran out. We've just proven that from the text. It's because we stepped away from it. Why do we do that? The means of grace are always there. That waterfall never stops, and we step out of it to indulge the flesh for a time, to be part of the world for a time. This feels good. It feels good to my flesh. I want to just be out for a little while. This is fun. This is good. And all of a sudden, things start looking not so good. You've walked away. You need to come back. Come back to the cross. That's where that waterfall is. That's where the cleansing is. That's where the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace is. That's where I was washing you. That's where I was cleansing you. That's where if they look clearly in that waterfall, they'll see the image of Christ in your face, in your countenance. You'll start looking like me. So why do we step away? I don't have an answer to that question other than what the text says about the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the boastful pride of life. McLaren said, in, these, in those dark moments when our faith is weak, remember, faith is an active taking, not a passive receiving, end quote. Faith is an active taking, If we wake up in the misery of our flesh, and that's kind of our default setting, we shouldn't start pouting and muttering, you know, you know, I don't feel very spiritual. You've got to reach out and take it. You've got to believe what he said. It's available. It's there for you. I'm not going to make you love me. I'm not going to make you come to me. I'm not going to make you want to live the life that I've called you to to follow me. You must trust me. You must know that that waterfall is there and reach out and grab it and stand in that grace and abide in Christ. That we have to choose to do. And then we fulfill the intention of the Holy Spirit, don't we? Law and grace are contrasted in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There's very little, if any, controversy as we're 
running toward the finish line here this morning of the controversy that Paul had to deal with over and over again about the relationship between the law of Moses and the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul did the seminal work on that, in my view. John doesn't really have to deal with that just to touch on it and say, remember the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we can assume that the controversy is pretty much settled by the time we get to the end of John. He doesn't do like massive sort of treatments on that whole issue. People have settled that issue in his time, by his time, one way or another. They've landed on one side of that issue or another, continued to be works-oriented people. And maybe you know somebody who is caught up in some works-oriented understanding of Christianity or works-oriented other sort of religion. And you've tried and prayed and tried and prayed, and it's just that's what they want. So he's just giving mention to it here in John chapter 5, John's gospel rather, chapter 5, verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So those in John's day that are still hoping in keeping the Mosaic law are unfortunate indeed. The law is rigid, inflexible, merciless, compassionless. The law does nothing but accuse. It declares what you ought to be. It demands that you obey, but it makes no help, no effort at all to get you there, to help you. There's no help in it. It's a tutor that walks alongside you with a stick to go over your lessons. And if you're not getting the lessons right, you get hit. That's all the law is. Grace, on the other hand, is rich in mercy. It's great in love. It's forgiving. And as we've proven, it's inexhaustible. It's endless. Extending divine favor to the undeserved. That's what grace is, isn't it? That's what we want. The law was given. That word given means to entrust or commit. This is the law. It's meant to lead us to the cross, isn't it? Grace and truth came. On the other hand, the word came means to become or to come into being. So grace itself came into being. And what was his name? Jesus Christ. Laws are inanimate and written on tablets of stone and grace and truth are communicated and personified in Jesus Christ. John 12, 44 to 47, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I and the Father are one. Yeah. Verse 46, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, even though we often do that with each other from time to time. For I did not come to what? To judge the world. Why? It's already mired in judgment, right? It's already hopelessly bound up and imprisoned in judgment. God 
brought the law through Moses at a point in time so people would understand how sinful they are. He had to drown the whole earth at one point. They were so utterly wicked. Except for Noah and his family. You remember that. Verse 18, and we're done. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, he had said in John 12. Verse 18 of our text, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has made Him known. Made Him known. Exegetomai. Exegetomai. What do you, word do you think we get from that? God's exegeting Himself. That's what a preacher does in the study, or that's what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to pull out, X out, pull out, genomai, the Genesis word, out what the original meaning of the word is. It comes up and it comes out and out to you. God is doing that to reveal himself through his son. Exegenomai, to lead out, to declare thoroughly and particularly, to unfold, to reveal the definition of that term. Let me close with John three, seventeen to 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. That's who we have here, folks. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. He has come, and he has come to save us, and he's come in the flesh, and he gave that flesh up on the cross to make full payment for your sins and mine. I am the resurrection of the life, he said to Martha. And then he asked the question, that he asks of all of us this morning, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's speak with him now. If you have something to reconcile, now's the time. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the God-man. Thank you for his revelation to us. We it's a short time to go through such profound doctrine, but Lord, I believe you've been here. You've revealed yourself through your word, and I thank you for that assurance. I just pray, Lord, that as we've received your word today, the understanding of who Jesus is and why he had to come, that we would be sure that we are in the faith, that we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, we examine ourselves as the Apostle Paul recommended to see if we're in the faith. Because perhaps there's a part, there's an element of this Jesus who is the Christ that we didn't understand or something we before today did not accept. And now, Lord, may we accept you in the whole fulfillment, the comprehensive revelation, the fullness of your name and who you are, and what you've done. 
Lord, may you receive glory now and forever. In his name we pray. Amen.